You're listening to FemWonk, a podcast about inclusion, policy, politics, and current affairs. I'm your host, Katie Davey. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, so as promised, we're back to give you an analysis of what happened in the New Brunswick election. I know many of you are interested in that and others are just here because you like me and I appreciate that. Uh, I'm excited today actually to be joined by, um, by J.P. Lewis, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at UMB St. John. Uh, J.P. and I had the opportunity to connect on a number of political podcasts, nope, this is a political podcast, on rather kind of political panels with the CBC over the election campaign. So I'm happy to have him on here to give us a bit more of a sense of some of the weeds that we didn't get to touch on. And yeah, without further ado, I'm just going to first, JP, turn it over to you to ask uh, what happened. Well, hi, Katie, uh, and hello to your audience. Um, I, I think one of the big questions at the start of the campaign, the short four-week campaign was, um, is this a good idea for those in the audience who don't live in New Brunswick or the Maritimes or Atlantic Canada? I mean, COVID-19, while initially was very similar here to other jurisdictions, it's been pretty open for, I'd say, even three months. Um, so it, it is different, but there's still, you know, hanging over Higgs and the progressive conservatives was should there even be an election? And I think early on, that was like the big question I had. Um, I would get calls from the media saying like, you know, is this a good idea? And I would say, I don't know. We need the polling to know <laughs> if people, you know, the public thinks it's a good idea. And I still, I don't know if I ever really saw some numbers on that. I, I definitely saw some polling on, well, I was polled. I, got, I don't know which one it was but where they asked whether or not you thought the coalition, a coalition government was a good idea. So to me, in terms of answering the question of what happened, I still go back to the question of should there have been an election? Because it was such a strange campaign, having been in the middle of a pandemic, and there was a, a very almost absent policy debate. So to me, it was still just a question almost of competence related directly to the government's performance in responding to COVID-19, even though it was much different in New Brunswick, much different challenges. And also, I think we were lucky because of our demographics. So what happened is Higgs won five more seats. And, and uh, there's other things going on um, in the periphery, but that allowed him to have a majority government and that's why he called it. And that was, you know, what people thought was the gamble. So if I was going, I know that was a long answer, <laughs> but if it was one sentence, it would have been Higgs won a couple more seats and now he has a majority government. Yeah. I've, I've been asked by a number of folks and I'm sure you have too, like particularly outside of New Brunswick, is this what we expected? Like, is, is this what we could have predicted? And, you know, I think this is probably the results are exactly what we expected uh, for me anyways. Um, I think there's a couple of seats that maybe I was like, oh, that's interesting. But writ large, this is the exact gamble that Higgs was was taking and it paid off for him um, overall. And so, yeah, I guess we should just mention the actual breakdown. So the progressive conservatives won 27 seats, the liberals 17 Green Party, three. People's Alliance, two. So 
I think relatively what we kind of expected. Um, but what do you think some of the factors were that contributed to that outcome? I, I think the only thing that may have changed, say, I mean, a lot of things, so it's been two years since the last election when, you know, Higgs only and the progressive conservatives got 32% of the popular vote, um, as you recall, and, uh, but had more seats than the liberals. So if you think about what's happened in the last two years, what would lead, uh, you know, New Brunswick to, to give the, the party five more seats? And I think a lot of it could be tied to just the handling of the pandemic because for, so again, I don't want to get too detailed for those who aren't following New Brunswick politics daily, but this government was in a lot of trouble right before the pandemic. Uh, trying to make a really long story short is that they had plans to change the emergency room hours to six rural hospitals. And, um, and that was not surprisingly very unpopular. And out of that, they lost their one Francophone um, minister and deputy premier and seat in the North, Robert Gauvin, who left the party, sat as an, left the cabinet, left the party, sat as an independent. Um, so getting back to, you know, how, how was Higgs, how were the progressive conservatives able to do this? I think, so his popularity increased, but it appears that where it really, where there was an effect was in their, you know, the, the part of the province where they're traditionally strongest. So like, I pick up, like looking at a riding like St. John Harbor, and I can't, I don't have the final margins. I just know that the margin of victory by the progressive conservative candidate was so much greater than the last. And, and again, for those who don't follow the Brunswick politics closely, this writing is fascinating. The last three elections were decided by, I think it goes 10 votes, 71 votes, and maybe nine votes. Like it's like a very tight. So looking at a writing like that, you think, well, they were the Tories were up in the polls uh, in those Angus Reid approval ratings. They do Higgs was up, and where did that translate? So maybe it was in a lot of those like like Saint Croix, those southern ridings that in may in more normal circumstances the Liberals could have either defended or picked off, um, and I think maybe that's just that that was the spot. Because you look in the north and there are, the margins there are, so when I say margins, like margins of victory, and Katie, you can correct me if I'm wrong or someone in the audience at home following along. I think the, the incumbent candidate in Karaket got 83% of the vote. So obviously in those ridings, the Higgs, there wasn't some sort of COVID bounce for Higgs. Yeah, so I actually just pulled up as you were as you were chatting here. So in St. John Harbor, the conservative candidate in this election got 41% of the vote. Um, and then the Green Party, 23%, the Liberals, 22 So the fact that, you know, the Conservative Party won by about a thousand votes in St. John Harbor is is shocking in you know in comparison to what's happened over the last number of elections there i will highlight though part of that is a turnout story um because in saint john harbor so it is historically a low turnout but i think the turnout ended up only being like 45 percent or something um 
So I think that goes back to some of these conversations about a pandemic election. St. John Harbor is the perfect example of a riding where, you know, having a ground game and a strong get out the vote campaign is really important because, um, because it, you know, it's definitely the riding in the province with the highest level of, of poverty. And we know that lower income folks tend to turn out at a, at a lower rate rather. Um, so I think those are some conversations that are interesting. And yeah, it's your point. So I, again, just pulled up Caraquette here because I've got a computer right in front of me. Yeah, I remember being totally shocked with, with Isabel and Caraquette. It was um, 72% of the vote. But then in Shipigan, which is a riding that you highlighted because of the um, hospital closing, the Liberal candidate got 83% of the vote. Yeah, yeah that was the one. Yeah. And, and, the conservatives won last time, right? So yeah, exactly. It's shocking. But um, yeah, I think that's interesting, the, the hospital piece. I think a, a story that hasn't been told much either is the fact that if the government had have gone back to the legislature, it's very possible they would have lost the confidence of the House immediately because of the makeup. And that seems to be, at least from the conversations I've been seeing, not really something that has been discussed. So in some ways, the election was probably inevitable. And, and also the, the week leading up to it, and again, this will probably be forgotten to some extent, but it was really bizarre, the, um, the negotiations that Higgs was having with Vickers and Kuhn and Austin. So there was maybe two or three days where there was speculation that, because um, I, was, I was in a part of the province I'd never been to, Cape Tormentine, the fan, very beautiful, uh, just north of the old ferry where the ferry would go to Prince Edward Island between that and the Confederation Bridge. Anyways, I was getting calls from the media that week to talk about, and even though I was on vacation, I wanted to take them because it was, Higgs was trying to secure some deal that would keep government in power for a decade. Like it was, it was wild. Because I thought, oh, that must be a starting point. Maybe all along he wanted to just go to the polls. But I thought in terms of negotiating tactics, maybe it could be like they would rest on a deal and just have the election in the spring. But that was probably maybe giving, that was me not being cynical. Because if I put my cynical hat on, it's Higgs wanted to go all along. This was seen as the window. In New Brunswick, I mean, again, getting back to the, the what the pandemic is like here i mean sure there's talk of a second wave kids are going back to school i think once we get past any out of province university students back and we don't have any big numbers as long as we keep the atlantic bubble closed it's hard to imagine it escalating like it maybe is starting to escalate in another so was there really one i don't know sorry my whole point being the spring really set up well for what would have made sense because then we would have been leading and getting to I had mentioned in passing the absence of a policy discussion. Then the, the Tories, and maybe th there's a good reason why you wouldn't do this, because I, I can only imagine this is going to be a bad news budget in 2021. I don't even really know why I'm talking about this idea, because it seems almost as far-fetched as a 10-year government as saying, like, we're going to govern until we fall on a really unpopular budget. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think... What's interesting from my perspective is, um, a couple, and for, for others, is a couple of things. So Higgs, um, as, as has been demonstrated and reported, he, he has 
shown this real contempt for parliament or for the legislature in this case, but it's not the same kind of type that you normally see. Like it's very much a, this, from my perspective, again, it's very much this like born out of not really understanding how it works or why it works that way and how, you know, laws govern us. <laughs> and we've seen that uh, so many times, so many times, even in this election where he said, like at the beginning, well, we'll stop it if we have to. And the chief electoral officer was like, well, I don't know how we would do that. <laughs> no, it's a great point. It's not um, like I wouldn't call Blaine Higgs a populist. I don't I don't think that his like views of reforming government come from kind of like a Preston Manning. I'm going to live a, in a hotel instead of Stornoway uh, or even Chris Austin that, that it's more um, and maybe, maybe it's more on the lines of, you know, people who come from a background in the business world, the managerial world, who see democratic mechanisms and accountability. And they're not, it's, it's a different than populism. It's, it's um, like what, what he was proposing essentially was, and this would for, if there's fans of Canadian history in the audience, is essentially what was in Newfoundland and Labrador for they joined Confederation when they had a commission government for 15 years. And they actually voted on that. Like that was one of the options in the referendum. And that's, that's essentially what he was doing. And him even talking about like, it's this. so I think one other thing we need to unpack before we get any further, and this is definitely something I liked personally, was the our all party cabinet committee. So in New Brunswick, um, so the day after the first um, identified case, the, the uh, Higgs formed all party cabinet committee on COVID. I don't know if that's the official name, but it's close to that with him, Vickers, David. So Kevin Vickers, the liberal leader, David Kuhn, the green leader, Chris Austin, the people's Alliance leader. And then I think like Dominic Cardi, maybe Ernie Steves, there's a few other ministers and they were sworn in. So that, and that's the key point because there were other provinces where the leaders or the premier, sorry, may have consulted a bit with the other leaders. There were other provinces that had even like quasi working committees with other party leaders, but no one was sworn in and sworn in under cabinet confidentiality and cabinet secrecy. And it, this really came to a head of like understanding how powerful this committee was when one of the few kind of politically controversial moments was what was New Brunswick going to do with temporary foreign workers? So, this was an issue because there was concern about the labor force and bringing them in and people worried about COVID coming in with temporary foreign workers. So Higgs had started this. I can't, do you, Katie, do you remember what slogan he had? It's like, we're in this together. He, he wore a t-shirt at one of the press conferences. That's basically like trying to recruit New Brunswickers who may be temporarily laid off or unemployed to come work in these like fish processing plants, whatever. And that didn't work. They weren't able to recruit enough people. Anyways, they, they quickly changed paths and getting back to the committee, it was the committee that made that decision. And, and Ross Wetmore, who was the agriculture minister whose file it would have been, was completely out of the loop on that. I think he was, anyways, he was the minister who who's, uh, was responsible for that area. And to me, that was like, wow, this is, this committee is really like, it, it is, I mentioned earlier, like, or I don't 
I don't know if I mentioned it before we started recording, but the idea of a coalition government and like, that's kind of a coalition government in a way, even though it's the side committee, but it was because the pandemic was front and center. It was deciding it. Anyways, getting to Higgs style, it was like, so you would watch that and you'd think like, wow, he likes to collaborate with other parties, but there's no accountability. You're basically, and also to some extent, I mean, I don't want to speak for Vickers, Kuhn, and Austin, but you're seducing them a bit with the fact that, wow, we get to make decisions. And there would, it was funny, there would be, not funny, haha, but it, there would be press conferences after. And they couldn't answer the questions reporters would have, like Austin or Kuhn or Vickers, because they were sworn to secrecy because they were, had been sworn into the committee. So, so I think that is almost like a classic Higgs tool of, we're getting things done. We're going against like things that people normally find annoying, but on the way there, you lose like transparency, accountability, and a lot of like democratic concerns we would have. Yeah. So I have like about a million things to uh, follow up and unpack on just that. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's super interesting is, like, quite frankly, those three leaders were more loyal to the cabinet confidentiality than half of Higgs' cabinet was, um, which is, again, super interesting. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, there's a few lovely uh, Twitter folks who had been unpacking that quite extensively over these last few months. Um, yeah, I mean, even on the on the temporary foreign workers piece, it's another kind of classic example that we've seen of Higgs where he kind of moves really quickly in what he perceives as kind of the right direction without having all the facts. And what I thought was interesting, so I actually saw a posting in Caraquette um, for, for their uh, fish processing plant. And so I said, obviously, I'm currently in Ottawa right now, I'm not going to move to Caraquette for the summer, but... Um, I was like, okay, what if I what if I was a student in Fredericton and wanted to do this? So I googled housing. Well, it might shock you to learn there was not a single apartment for rent in Caraquette. Um, so so it just like little things like that. How are you going to fill those one hundred jobs in Caraquette when there's nowhere for anybody to live? Um, but that that's an aside. That's a total aside. But. Yeah, I mean, I think this gets into some of what we saw in the campaign around the the lack of policy discussion. You know, Higgs continued to say, um, I've already told you what I'm going to do. I've already told you what I'm going to do. Just look at my budget for March. Um, But like, let's let's get into process again. The first thing they're going to have to do now is start the budget process for 21-22. So saying, you know, uh, well, I've already told you what I'm going to do. I think that's a bit odd. So um, let's let's go to the campaign for a second. And, you know, what surprised you, I guess, about this campaign compared to others? Well, I, I mean, talking about, you know, that they're about to enter the budget process now and the lack of policy, like, I don't even know. I don't even know if they had a platform, the Tories. Like, I know Higgs kept bragging that. Released it on friday i think election day was monday and they yeah they really so but and higgs also kept talking about you know we're not we're not making any promises because then we don't like anyways then we have to keep them or whatever we don't know what and so it's interesting and i think a lot of it has to do with like a it was a very short campaign b the 
leader of the official opposition, you know, the, the closest to a presumptive next premier, just like ha, ha, didn't have the experience to just walk into like a super weird campaign. And I mean, I know, you know, one of the talking points the other leaders were going after was that it was a power grab, but probably, and I just, I don't know if this would have been effective. And I know they talked about a hidden agenda, but if you don't have a platform, like, and we know in the past that when, you know, the late Jack Layton asked Stephen Harper what he was hiding under his sweater vest, like Harper, they still want enough seats to form government. I don't think that was the majority. I think it was, anyways, like it doesn't always work, but this was a perfect target of like, what are you hiding? What are you, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to use COVID-19 as a springboard for austerity that goes beyond what is necessary just to kind of like rein things in because there was all these expenditures to prop up the economy while it was decimated. So I would, I would break it down almost like, so the first two weeks was just like the party's trying to get candidates, uh, everyone being like, okay, we're in an election campaign now. Uh, the third week was reacting a bit to, oh, we finally have some polling. Nothing is still happening. By the fourth week, like everything that would have happened in a normal campaign happened. You had some um, candidates who had to be dropped because of uh, previous social media posts, which actually, I, that, that was one thing I was very surprised by. I thought there would be way more. I thought that would be, in terms of the campaign political side of things, I thought that would dominate. I thought the way the parties were scrambling that, you know, they don't have time to vet candidates and the, the trails that people leave behind are for everyone to see. It's so easy to find, you know, offensive posts from the past and it's right there. And how do you like, I mean, I know people try to defend those things, but really. Uh, so in that final week, and then you had the debates and then it was just, and then it's a, the election. And I think that all of that was mostly important to, because even though the Greens were up in the polls a bit, I think it was always just about like, can we continue momentum? Can we keep our seats in Memram Cook and um, with the Shadiac riding that um, Arsenal's in? Kind of same goes for, um, for Austin. The, this was really like, is Vickers going to be able to say, um, you know, we have a plan for recovery. We, and also, I know the other leaders were trying to take credit saying like whenever Higgs would be like, you know, we did look at our performance, getting back to our previous point, every leader could also say, well, I was in the room with you. It was just, it was tough. I mean, that's where too, but we need to stop and say like in multi-party systems, it's easy, easy to think because it's a majority government that there's this overwhelming mandate in Canada we think 40%, like think about Trudeau in 2015 federally, I think he was 39%. And it was, you know, he's got this big major mandate. But once you enter into multi-party systems, like we do now have in New Brunswick, it seems like, like that, that was my big question about 2020. Pandemic aside, 2018 was a super historic election in the province. Are we gonna see that continue into 2020? Um, but unfortunately, because the campaign was so short, I think there's, there isn't much of a story to the campaign other than like, it was just the parties trying to find their feet. Once they got them, we were voting. And also um, reminding your audience that, so you might have the raw totals in front of you, 
but like, what was it? 133,000 people voted in advance polls or at returning offices. So how many people normally vote in New Brunswick? Like 340,000 or something like that, roughly. Yeah. So you have almost half the, the electorate voting before election, before the debates. I think it was half. I think um, if I remember correctly seeing somewhere um, the chief electoral officer saying that it was half, half of New Brunswickers voted in advance. And yeah, that's like, again, if we, the conservatives put their platform out on Friday, <laughs> all yeah. of the vote had already happened by that point. So, yeah. And even the other, like the parties, like it, and again, we'll put our cynical hats on. The Tories were ready to go. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think if we're going to be critical, the liberals, while maybe they like, I didn't think there was going to be an election, but still, if you're in a minority government, you need to have your ducks in a row or whatever that metaphor is to be ready. Um, I think like if you're one of the parties that could be stepping right into government. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. So for the story of the campaign is really that it happened. That's it. <laughs> like, well, there was a campaign and an election happened. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's super interesting because in, in some ways, um, like you said, so the conservatives knew it was going to happen. They were ready. And then they, they still, you know, didn't have the best uh, plan ever. But I think, yeah, to that point, so I, I have no time for the argument that the liberals particularly put out, uh, particularly around recruiting um, candidates, because they should have been recruiting candidates since, you know, January 1st, 2018, really, like, oh, yeah. in doing that work. And so, um, and I say this particularly on the side of uh, diversity, the fact that the liberals only had 20% women is just to me, like as, again, somebody who spent some time with them, like that signaled to me that this was not uh, not the party it had been in the last number of years. Um, and, you know, I think that was demonstrated by much of what we saw in the campaign. Um, but to your point too, like Vickers also didn't have, I guess, enough time to be introduced to the electorate. Um, and I think you, you see that, um, all, all across the country, things like that happen. But to your point too, I think the Conservatives got 39%, which is the small, or yeah, the smallest percentage to actually secure a majority. So I think your point is super interesting about um, what that actually, what does the four-party system mean in New Brunswick? Well, because in 2014, the Brian Gallant liberal led liberals. So that's where the, the party system really started to change. So at that point, 20% of New Brunswickers aren't voting for one of the two traditional parties, mm. which only eight years earlier in 06, 95% of New Brunswickers, almost 95% of New Brunswickers were voting for the progressive conservatives or the liberals. And so Glant, that they, they were able to form majority with 42%. Obviously this, so that was, that may have been the lowest at that. That could have been the first record yeah. because I know normally it t in New Brunswick, it would take like mid forties, um, I just have the, I have the numbers in front of me. So Sean Graham in 06 needed 46%, Bernard Lord in 99, 52%. So, yeah. So, well, obviously like if there's only two super competitive parties, yeah, it's, it's probably going to be, it might not be 50, but it's going to be mid to high forties.
Well, you're seeing that as well in, in individual ridings, right? Like I, I gave you the numbers for St. John Harbor, for example. Technically, the Greens and the Liberals together had more that support than the Conservative candidate. And that's the case, I think. I, again, haven't dug into the data too much yet, but I, I would assume that would be the case in many ridings. So um, again, I, I think I mentioned uh, earlier this week when we, um, when we chatted uh, I, I'll be surprised if the conversation around electoral reform doesn't start re-bubbling up in New Brunswick, particularly at the grassroots. And, you know, g- getting back to one of your points, um, for like political party wonks, to use the title of your podcast, wonk, right? <laughs> it's called wonk. Femme wonk? Wonk, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But people who are really into the inner workings of political parties, um, and probably if we go back, we might be able to see this with snap elections since representation became more of a like a like a real concern that people were trying to act on because we have enough research now that shows for you know traditionally or historically marginalized groups there needs to be more time yeah right like we know you know the classic research that shows you know men on a like like at a higher portion don't need to be asked to run like just stepping up and women need to be asked more often and even just all the different barriers that are that exist. So, so I, I'm that's a great point you made. I, I am curious if like, just to say like for any, like, well, in a few different ways, like let's say someone walked in to try to rebuild the New Brunswick NDP right now. Like you have to start now. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's the same with the liberals um, because I mean, and to a, a greater extent, like speaking of these parties, like that progressive vote in the province is kind of like it, it I would imagine the progressive voters was definitely frustrated. Well, obviously frustrated Tuesday morning. Right. And, but you can see how it's, and it's a different type of like, you know, we have splits in this country, whether it's like a split on the right, you know, you could say even in the province, the people's Alliance, but right now, because you have, you know, the NDP was at 13% two election cycles ago. Um, the Greens are on the rise. The Liberals can still be a home, I would argue, like I would assume still attract some progressive voters. But, um, but it, yeah, I, I don't know where that, I don't know what happens next with that, that kind of voting base. Yeah, well, and I think the rebuild piece is really important because, you know, I assume that after 2018, all, all of the, the parties were doing the bare minimum essentially to just kind of wait for the next election rather than, you know, in the case of Vickers, right, where we saw an acclamation, parties weren't really running robust leadership campaigns, for example, or even even the fact that so many candidates were appointed in this um, in this election, which even, you know, two years ago in 2018, most party membership would have been totally against. And the fact that it doesn't really seem like that was an issue um, is super interesting. So they have, in some cases, probably a runway of four years to start, um, you know, pending nothing totally crazy happens. But Higgs, Higgs really, after he appoints a speaker, only has a one-seat majority. So No, I know, you know, that, and you raise a good point. Like, it's kind of fascinating. Like, I mean, I think people have been talking about this, that there should have been a leadership, like, I mean, obviously you can't just force a leadership race if no one else is going to run. But in hindsight, it's kind of wild that like, it's not like Higgs had this super secure. It's not say like, say a comparison might be, you know how the, 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 
the race that Andrew Scheer won at the federal level, I think there were there was talk that you know the big guns maybe weren't running because they thought Trudeau had a safe path to govern for a long time. Like Higgs didn't have a safe path at all. The government could have fallen any at any point. And I mean, I know Kevin Vickers is a national hero and a known figure, but does that explain it all? Like he was that big of a name that any like former liberal minister or just maybe just anyone with leadership aspiration just thought like, oh, I'm going to sit this one out. That is exactly what happened. In 2018, the Liberals under Gallant won the popular vote. Voters don't really, most voters don't actually really understand the system that well, right? They can't like, obviously, you know that you are political science prof. I'm sure you face that all the time. (laughs) Um, But so I think internally, people really saw that as a rejection of Brian Gallant and of, you know, the party moving more towards the left. And so in some ways, not only was Vickers kind of, as you said, this national hero, but kind of the opposite of Brian Gallant in many ways, older statesmen, the whole thing that they kind of maybe saw Higgs as being. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you can't force a leadership race to happen, but you can certainly tip the scale to make it not happen. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that was what kind of was happening internally. And I think probably that won't happen this time because of of the results. But well, and I mean, I'm always fat. I know it's a trend. It's very normal for and Vickers definitely seems like it was a good idea to resign the night of. But with Gallant, um, I mean, I, when I watch that from afar with no connections to it, I always think like, and I don't know what kind of internal pressures there were. Um, and also, you know, you go from being premier to just a backbench MLA. But I mean, in another day and age, legislators and parliamentarians just kind of hung around, right? And made, or leaders would stick like, what did Lester Pearson lost two elections to Diefenbaker before he finally won, I think? Well, look at how long Diefenbaker stuck, right? And De- well, yeah, Diefenbaker was, and Diefenbaker, I think he even ran for leadership after he was booted. At, like, so, I mean, I know, I know that's the, that, that's what leaders do now is they get out. And I think in a province like New Brunswick, there's probably a lot more practical reasons as well. You go from the salary of being in cabinet to being just an MLA. And also you would have had the profile being in cabinet. You're, you know, Brian Glantz age, you can start, you continue on in a different career path. But there, there was the context for a like, well, Higgs won this round, Glantz going to be premier again soon. But uh, like, just speaking more to this, the state of the liberal leadership. Yeah, well, even honestly, if you look at who the caucus voted as their interim uh, leader of the opposition, right? In in many ways as well, Denis Laundry is the exact opposite of what Brian Gallant is and yeah. us. So I think that's, you know, internally those factors. Um, I, I have a couple of other things I want to just touch on. So um, we, we talked a little bit about policy and this being a a campaign with without policy. Um, it's funny, actually, that our last episode was just two weeks ago, literally two weeks from today. And I wanted to do a platform analysis. And the only platform available at the time was the NDP. And, you know, that was 10 or 14 days ago, and the election has since happened. But I really expected this election 
um, to be an election about a vision for a COVID recovery. And yes, you know, New Brunswick and Atlantic hasn't necessarily experienced all of the impacts as much as other places. But, you know, the unemployment rate is still, I think, 12%. There's, you know, schools started again, there's still different types of uh, factors there. People are still wearing masks to to grocery stores and, and all those things. You still can't you can only hug one person if you're in a long-term care facility, right? There's there's still lots of elements, and and the borders closed. And as uh, as an export or aspiring export province, I guess I'll maybe call New Brunswick. Um, you know that that matters. And and you know just from my personal perspective, I haven't been to New Brunswick since December, and I would sure as heck like to go and see my grandmother. Um, so, but that didn't nothing. Nobody talked about that. Nobody talked about that. There was no pandemic recovery policy pieces. You know, they talked a lot about small modular reactors. They talked some about cybersecurity, a little bit about housing. Um, are we just past the time where policy matters? I guess is my question. My preamble is long. That is my simple question. I wonder if, you know, some of those policy announcements and the policy they were debating was kind of like as if there wasn't a pandemic happening. So the typical challenges that the province faces, so whether it's economic development, whether it's the, you know, balancing the dual school systems or healthcare systems, um, like you would see all of that creep up. Um, There was... Definitely, and and I think in recent elections in New Brunswick, there might be a kind of a a very clear question related to economic development. So obviously, most recently, fracking, and I think that that was just such a, a not to simplify it too much, but just kind of such a clear question that allowed for a robust policy debate surrounding it. I think the the issues with um, language are always it's you know it's it's i think it's difficult for leaders to really balance sensitivity with new idea like it's just a, it's a tougher space to debate policy which leads me to i i think i think that just the covid recovery is such a complicated number of like different policy responses that deal with healthcare that deal with um you know uh, education that deal with social development that deal with long-term care that deal with trade that it was the it, it the, the way it was simplified and you know what was the Tory slogan we're up for the job that it was kind of just this a competence test test that saying like well we've managed the first six months fine and we can do the next and you raised some really good points there about honestly the debates were not very memorable except for when Kevin Vickers went after the moderator in the Rogers debate which was odd so like I can't even remember if they got into like those are and I don't know if if, like questions like the Atlantic bubble that leaders just didn't want to go after because the Atlantic bubble at least in polling that this polling's a bit old I think I saw it about six weeks ago 81 percent of New, New Brunswickers didn't want to open up so it's like it's super and and now so I mean, all those questions are so important, but there's this weird, um, it's obviously not uh, nationalism because it's a province, but this provincial pride of, oh, f- I mean, 
and full disclosure, I've only lived in New Brunswick for eight years, so I'm still from away. But I've lived here long enough to know that this is like, hey, we can brag about something. And like, even though all the indicators you said, yes, we still have comparatively high unemployment. We still have, like we were talking about St. John area, like all these priority neighborhoods where there's high rates of poverty. And um, we still have challenges with, you know, the language divide in the province and delivering services. We rely on the federal government. Like there's all these challenges that even if we have small amounts of cases and like I can go play a pickup basketball game where in, in Toronto you can't, like that doesn't help all the underlying systemic issues that New Brunswick faces. Like, so, and speaking of systemic, like it's kind of like a few of the issues that may have drawn progressive voters in or, or brought, been high on their list were things around access to abortion and having an inquiry for systemic on systemic racism. And, you know, I, I think it's, it speaks to the, the odd nature of the policy debates and maybe it's pandemic, but if there was ever a policy window to discuss systemic racism in New Brunswick, not only did we have two tragic events, but it, the whole continent is talking about it. Like it's, it was those, um, those events came on the, the tail of what was going on in the United States, but it never really picked up as, I mean, it, yes, it was discussed. The leaders differed on it, but, and I'm sure it could have been a ballot issue for some folks, but it wasn't, you know, I, I don't think on, on the list of, priorities that would it have rose above you know COVID recovery economic development yeah so so that's actually something that I've been thinking a little bit about as well as um, the fact that over these last six months not only did we see COVID-19 but again like you said these conversations internally in New Brunswick with systemic racism whether that's uh, with indigenous folks or otherwise what role do you think that played in, in two things. One, actually engaging more younger people to run. Like we saw particularly the NDP had quite a bit, uh, uh, quite, quite a bit more younger people run than normal. And also the turnout question. Like, do you think that people just were a little bit more engaged in kind of quote unquote politics because they've been tuning into press conferences once a week uh, for the last six months than they might've been in the past? Yeah, no, I, I really like that theory about the press conferences because you would think that actually regardless of age, like most people, especially when there was still stay-at-home order, you would assume they would have been following the government closer than they ever had in their lives, um, which you would have thought would actually lead to, a, maybe that's what even just brought the turnout back to 60, close to 67%. In terms of, I don't know if elections, like they probably wouldn't have it now. I don't know if elections in New Brunswick ever has a, like, well, they don't do exit polls, like they kind of break it down in terms of youth voting rate, um, or they do polling after the fact. But I mean, we can definitely speak to that there was some younger candidates. Um, the, I think the, the, the challenge, again, is speaking with the, about the NDP, is that the, the party had become so marginalized going in. Say if you put those candidates in the Green Party, maybe it's a different story because they already have the platform of, you know, their leader has been in the legislature for so long. They have two other seats. They're really high in the polls. 
in a lot of ridings they're they're starting to play second or third um so i think and i and the and one challenge i find i'm not um an active participant on social media for politics but i'm definitely a passive like i consume politics on social media and it's always difficult to measure what is a big deal on social media and what actually ends up being a big deal out in the real world. I'm not saying that social media is not the real world, but just trying to figure out like, wow, you know, this progressive group got the St. John MP and the mayor to go on the radio and talk about, you know, you know, and try to defend themselves, which like, that was a wild interview. I remember listening to that and just being like, what is going on right but that that means there's an intersection right of the social media that we're not sure how impactful it is to like you know if if something was a big enough thing to like change like getting back to electoral politics to cost a candidate a seat or something or or for a candidate to win because of their you know online presence yeah so so i i mean just to to end that point like i i guess the the silver lining of it is does access to abortion become an issue without even without some NDP candidates like getting pretty loud about it. And it, and it was an issue on the campaign trail for a bit. And again, just like the systemic racism issue, I'm not like, it's hard for us to say right now because you know what we missed. And again, this was a, another casualty of the snap election. Like we, they didn't weren't able to and cbc would understand why like there was no vote compass which is that recent like tool that um i yeah. think that it's called vox pop, pop labs this data lab that runs it cbc yep um contracts it out and then you and i would actually be able to talk right now about what were the most important issues overall what were the important issues for francophone like they completely break it down by the people who fill out those surveys so unfortunately that's kind of just like a uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's an important piece because on the one hand, you know, obviously lots of my, you know, friends or acquaintances or connections, whatever you want to call them on social media, are youngish women. So obviously for me, it seems like Clinic 554 and access to reproductive services is the biggest issue in the campaign, right? Like this is the biggest issue in the province. But if I, you know, walked outside and asked a random person on the street, would they have even have heard of it? Maybe if they live in Fredericton, but. And I mean, there, there are precedents in recent elections where an issue that maybe, you know, obviously there's a lot of people that it's their most important issue, but you don't expect for it to turn the tide. Like, I don't know, again, sorry to keep using federal examples, but a few years ago when I think it was Harper was looking to cut a bunch of arts funding and that in Quebec that like they lost seats over it. You wouldn't have thought that, again, I'm not saying funding arts isn't important, but when we look at the hierarchy of what voters are prioritizing, it might not be the highest, but that like, so that there, there is, there is a, a way to that this plays out. 2014, like, again, if we just draw this exact parallel with the same issue, um, access to abortion was an issue that turned the tide in 2014. And that was mostly because, again, Brian Gallant said, hi, we're a a pro-choice 
team and that's what we're doing you know same thing that trudeau said and and that meant it was a huge conversation and there you know there were uh, there were a whole um whole like uh what would you call it postcard campaigns Mm. in tight ridings from the kind of anti-choice movement of aborted yeah like third third party advertising and it was it was wild and that obviously impacted like you can there i remember hearing from some candidates um that they lost the election because of that there's no obvious um, research to suggest that but you know there's there's some precedent on this particular issue in new brunswick as well which i think is kind of interesting but and there i mean there could be a future for those issues that we're like right now kind of saying like it's hard to assess how like like because if you think if we're looking at you know the the map and if you say like okay all of rural the rural south is safe tory all of the rural north is safe liberal but that leaves like all those urban ridings moncton fredericton and st john maybe that's where like who knows next election cycle it could be poverty that like an issue that would traditionally draw in more progressive voters yeah and in those specific ridings, that's what like, but again, as you said earlier, vote splits can like, you could have 70% of the riding really care about access to reproductive services, but all, but they split their vote and a Tory sneaks up the middle. Yeah. Or to the, I guess to the right would be a more accurate way to say it. Yeah. Um, so one, uh, I guess, final question here so as uh, as i'm sure some folks have already seen on on uh, twitter twitter is where i consume all my you know political media fun stuff uh, bc is is now saying or you know they're they're doing kind of the the dance of emergency meetings to talk about budgets and economic future etc cetera, etc cetera, uh which you know is is kind of pre-election talk and bc is a I guess, is it, I can't even remember now, is it officially a coalition or it's a supply, confidence and supply, I think they've got right now with the NDP and Greens. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think any Green members are in cabinet. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, I think yeah. it's formal confidence and supply. Um, so, so they're saying, I think it's, you know, end of October, early November, perhaps for an election. So what, um, I guess what, this is two-parted, but it's just, two sides of the coin what can what can we learn from this election like what can folks outside of new brunswick learn from this election and what can folks not learn like what lessons do we want to dispel uh, i guess that people might uh, assume so i think on the like things we can learn on the kind of campaign retail sign i think there's obviously we live in an age of social media there's lots of things you can do that take the place of you know traditional activities I think that the challenge is obviously demonstrating momentum because you can never have that big route, like where the, you know, the nightly news says a thousand people showed up to hear so-and-so give this speech. Um, If you, for, for new candidates, right. We talked about Kevin Vickers. It it can be a challenge, but I think there are certain ways, like there were, you know, all I moderated an all candidates meeting on, on zoom. um, And actually it was, I would say it got nasty near the end, but for the most part, it was like, you could easily hear what people were saying. Like it was, it was an easy platform to consume. 
you didn't have to worry about like someone showing up to the debate. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have open debates where people come from the public, but you didn't have someone from the public start like, you know, uh, heckling or what, whatever can happen in these. So, you know, I, so I think there's, there's like New Brunswick and I, I heard, I think this was on one of the CBC podcast shows, but they, they were mentioning that uh, Stephen, I think Jacques Coutois was mentioning that Stephen Horseman up in Fredericton North was, had rented an RV instead of a constituency office and was just parking it at like, cause in New Brunswick, we do have kind of quasi public, like, like little league baseball leagues are running. So you, you could actually find pe- places where people were gathering. So, I mean, I'm sure if people looked a bit from British Columbia at how New Brunswick um, candidates were campaigning, there'd be some innovations that they could, could pick up. I, I think on the can't side, and it's more just like you can't, it's, you can't assume that whatever happened with COVID-19 and um, evaluation of government and voter intentions will overwhelm traditional voting patterns. Because basically, if, you know, if someone, you know, had a long six month nap and then woke up and saw the results, it's easy to convince them that this was, these are the results if you remove COVID, that Higgs has a slightly bigger, like, you know, he has a majority now, only won five more seats. Liberals went down a bit. People's Alliance lost seat. That's not surprising. So, because I think you can't assume that all the, like being up in the polls uh, throughout the spring and summer, or just like that people are feeling good about the government is going to mean that there'll be this landslide victory um and also i mean we've been complaining on this podcast about that it can and i maybe the the especially the winning candidates don't care as much about this but there could be a real issue of like what are you going to talk about like what are your priorities going to be how robust can the policy debate be when you know 2020 uh 2021 is a bit of a mystery and also like our, our incumbent premier is going to look at what Higgs did. And so I guess that's back in the, what can you do and do the same, which I would argue if this was a political strategy podcast, that might be a great thing. But if you're worried about policy, it's not a good thing if you're not talking about policy in a fruitful way during an election campaign. Yeah. I mean, this is a podcast for a little bit of everything. So uh, yeah. great advice there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And I think it's interesting, um, your point that a COVID, a pandemic won't necessarily overwhelm uh, traditional voting behavior. So uh, I think that's a great lesson to take away because um, I think uh, I've at least started hearing kind of some of the conversations around, um, I guess, around COVID in the short and medium, or I guess medium and long rather term being a real, um, a real threat to incumbent governments. So, I, you know, I don't know, that's just punditry really, but uh, it might, might be true. And, and that, and that could be the theory behind the window, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Do it all before the tides change. But even with that, like, let's say how high did the federal liberals get? Maybe high forties. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're going to win a bunch of seats in Alberta. No, no, exactly. <laughs> right. So I think, yeah, for like bellwether ridings, um, obviously it could be really important. 
Um, but other than that, I think you can't overestimate the, the honeymoon effect of like s seeming to res like respond well to a, a, a global pandemic. Yeah, I think that's right. Like what we saw in New Brunswick was the ridings that were going to be contested were contested. Like those, yeah. those are the ones that, that uh, Higgs picked up or, or lost and, and vice versa. So yeah, I think that's a great lesson to learn and a good place for us to uh, leave on. So thanks so much for, I guess, wonking out with me. I'll use, I'll use the word. Um, I often actually get questions. People have no idea what wonk means. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, JP. Thanks, Katie. Thanks so much for sticking with us. I want to thank our sponsor, Glass Sky. Glass Sky works to help the next generation of leaders make the most of their talents and contributions to society and the workplace in powerful ways. They work with progressive employers who want to embrace diversity and gain a deeper understanding of the changes they're facing as their leadership profiles rapidly shift to one of millennial and increasingly female. Visit their website, glassguy.org, to learn more. And if you liked this episode, share it. You can connect with us on social media at Femwalk, and I'll see you next time.